Today on the ESG Beat, our guest is Rick Alexander. Rick is a founder of the Shareholder Commons, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping shareholders use their power to protect common resources and vulnerable populations. Rick practiced law for 26 years as a lawyer in Delaware, and he was widely recognized as an expert in Delaware law. Rick was commonly referred to as the corporate lawyer's corporate lawyer. In 2015, Rick left his law practice to become head of legal policy at B-Lab. In that position, he worked with lawyers, companies, investors, and regulators around the world, seeking to create sustainable corporate governance structures. Rick prepared the initial drafts of both the Delaware Public Benefit Corporation legislation and the ABA Benefit Corporation white paper. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Rick. Oh, thanks for having me, Amelia. Delighted to be here. We don't have a ton of time, so I wanted to dive right in and have you explain to our audience what is the Shareholder Commons and what prompted you to start it? Sure. Well, uh, Shareholder Commons is a, is a small, uh, new nonprofit organization, and our focus, as the, uh, you know, as the, the name implies, uh, is on the common resources that all shareholders uh, rely on in common. Uh, and the, you know, the thought behind that name and that idea is that our system is constructed in a way that ignores the common resources and kind of treats uh, shareholding and investment as something of a war of all against all rather than a cooperative enterprise. Uh, and so we think that there's a better way, better for the shareholders and better for all stakeholders in our system. Uh, where this, where we have systemic, um, you know, concepts that recognize those common interests. So really the common interests are um, shared by what you refer to as the universal owner. And maybe we can start by having you explain to our audience, what is the concept of the universal owner? Sure. And I'll, 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 I'll start by saying that it's been around since the mid 90s, I think uh, Nell Minow coined the phrase, uh, you know, a well-known shareholder activist who's been around for a long time. Uh, and, and back in the 90s, when she was coining that phrase, I was, I was a company-side corporate lawyer. Um, and so probably my views of Nell have changed over the last 25 years. But it's, it's been around for a long time. And it's, it's a word that, that's used to describe uh, what shareholders really look like in the modern era, which is um, they're, they're very diversified. Uh, you know, under modern portfolio theory, it's important as a shareholder to own shares in many, many companies in many, many industries so that you can avoid uh, what they call the idiosyncratic risk of single companies and yet have all the risk of companies because the risk is what gives you high reward of returns. And so under modern portfolio theory, you can keep, keep the good returns, but lower your risk by owning lots of companies. And a universal owner is just sort of a typical owner who's in it for the long term, saving for retirement or education or future generations. Um, and who follows that theory and, and sort of is diversified across the economy. So once we recognize that, um, concept of the universal owner, 
what flows from that? What are the key implications of that? Because certainly that is how the market has organized itself. We are universal owners. Um, what are the corporate governance um, implications of that? Yeah, and so I'll quickly, before I answer that, I'll just quickly say that what I did before the shareholder commons, because it, it sort of shows you like why, why I was so excited when I stumbled on the concept. Before I started the shareholder commons, I worked at a nonprofit called B-Lab. And B-Lab has the mission of giving companies sort of a, a structure on which to improve their social and environmental impact. So if you're a for-profit company, but you also want to be a force for good, the idea is that you can work with B-Lab and they have a, you know, a, an assessment and, a, and lots of tools to increase your impact. And if you get a certain score on their impact assessment, you can be certified as a B Corp. And lots of companies have done that, like Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, Danone, North America, you know, the maker of Danon yogurt and silk milk. Um, so anyway. Part of their process is, is that they want companies to have a structure, legal structure, that um, looks to the interests of all stakeholders and not just shareholders. And my job there was to help companies overcome that, that last piece. And as I was there through, for four years, and as B-Lab scaled up and got bigger, I saw that the resistance to the change like everyone at the companies would want to do this, but there's a lot of resistance at the shareholder level. And it was because shareholders were worried that it would affect their return. Well, gee, that all sounds great to have good social environmental impact, but I need to save for my retirement, et cetera. Um, and, and so that's all to get to the implication of the universal owner. The implication of the fact that shareholders today are diversified and, and hold across markets is that they should also look beyond the profits or the, the market performance of single companies, what, what they call alpha, how, how one company or one portfolio exceeds the market. They should look beyond that because as a universal owner, like 80% of your return plus comes not from alpha, your outperformance of your single companies, but from market performance itself. And of course, if you're indexed, all of your return comes from market performance itself. So the implication of the fact that the large majority of shareholders these days are universal owners is that shareholders as a class should be focused on how the system performs, not how individual companies perform. Okay, so I'd like to delve a bit deeper into the concept of the universal owner. Uh, can you describe to us how this might play out in practice? Look, I think the I think the easiest example uh, is climate change. Um, you know, for any single company, they may, may be able to improve uh, their financial performance by using fuel that's a little bit cheaper and therefore a little bit dirtier, or by slowing their conversion, uh, you know, to, to carbon, uh, you know, carbon zero. Um, are you going to go by 2050, by 2045, or by 2040? And one of those might maximize your individual return. But the problem is when all the companies get together and think about how to maximize their own individual return, that increases the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere and means it's going to be much harder for us as a society or as a globe uh, you know, to keep 
temperatures to two degrees or 1.5 degrees, whatever you think it is, that's necessary to avoid the $65 trillion hit that economists have calculated our economy will take. And if the economy takes a $65 trillion hit, you know, there's going to be a corresponding hit to portfolios of equity, right? Because they're the first risk, uh, you know, first loss for uh, security. So that's the, that's the classic example. And it's, it's really just, you can go back to old article about the tragedy of the commons. It's just, it is just the tragedy of the commons. So that climate change example uh, does make things very concrete, but of course this concept of externalities affecting, uh, you know, businesses is also true of human capital management, of social risks, um, etc. But my question is, isn't that what regulation is for? Well, I think that's, that's the right question. And in some sense, I might say, yes, that's what regulation is for. And I think I spent probably the first part of my career sort of in that mode, thinking even though I probably and you know, I'm, I'm left of center. I was perfectly happy being a shareholder primacy lawyer telling people that that's all they should care about because I figured, you know, government could worry about the environment and things like that. And, you know, the, the, um, the smart ass answer is to say, and, and how's that working for you? <laughs> and look at nation today and say it's just not working. But I think it's more complicated than that. I think that the, the problem is that if you, have, if you give capital, you know, the owners of capital, this mission to maximize their own return, that one way they can do that is by lobbying government. And so they can try to reduce regulation. They can also arbitrage regulation. That's what, um, you know, tax avoidance and tax havens are all about. And they can also just move faster. Um, if you think about the 2008 financial crisis, you know, regulators just were not able to move as quickly as business was, you know, through all the different derivative securities. So ideally, yes, regulation could be sufficient, but I think that real world dynamics uh, mean that you're going to have to have regulation work in tandem um, with more responsible corporate governance to, to get to uh, sort of the point you need to get. And that seems to make sense because the perpetual cat and mouse game between companies and regulators, um, we don't have enough time on the planet for that, perhaps. <laughs> I think that's right. So with that understanding of the universal owner, I'd like to move to the impacts on business and in particular to the fiduciary duties. Once we accept that assets today are owned by universal owners, what are the implications for the duties of directors and officers? Yeah, so I think um, there, there's, there's some controversy over there, out there, over what the exact uh, fiduciary duties of directors and officers are. I, would, I, I tended to argue um, during my career that it was really uh, shareholder primacy, at least in Delaware, which is really the national corporate law, was pretty clearly the case that your duty was the shareholders and shareholders alone, and that duty was to maximize returns. Others argue that it's not so clear, but I think you know whatever the nuances of the you know arguments in the academy, the fact is companies operate today on a basis of their first obligation being to shareholders, and 
not just to shareholders as a class, but to the individual shareholders of that company without thinking about diversification. And, and so that duty leads those directors whenever they're confronted with a difficult decision. And I'll, the classic thing to think about is the sale of the company. Uh, so when it comes to, to sell the company, um, they might say, well, we're being offered you know, $50 a share uh, by company X and $51 a share by company Y. And we know that company X, which is gonna pay a little bit less, is gonna treat our workers terribly. Uh, and not only that, they're gonna replace them by doing, you know, doing the production in a jurisdiction that doesn't have environmental protections or worker protections human rights protections, and so we know this sale will be worse for all stakeholders, um, except shareholders who would get a little bit more. And yet, Delaware law would say, you have to sell to the higher bidder. Um, I think once you start thinking more holistically and you think about what does that mean for our economy, um, if you offshore uh, production, and you know, it's bad for the economy because just bad to have people treated that way and it eventually comes back to you and I would say you know we're living um, in an example of that um, or we saw an example of that in the COVID crisis uh, where you know the U.S. was unable to manufacture uh, drug precursors because everything had been offshored to companies with fewer environmental and worker protections and so the implication is that you would want to change the duties either by changing the law uh, or by changing practice. Okay, so I'm gonna come back to precisely how uh, one would go about changing the duties, but before I do that, I wanted to turn to the duties of investors. How does the concept of the universal owner impact the fiduciary duties of investors? You know, it's, it's really the same thing. And so today, the fiduciary duties of the trustees, say of a pension fund, are largely driven by something called the sole beneficiary rule. And that's the idea that the trustee of the fund can't think about anything except the interests of the beneficiaries of the trust. That makes perfect sense. The problem is it's been interpreted in a way that uh, the trustees should not be thinking about anything other than the financial return of the individual companies that they invested. Now, once again, I would say that there is not a hundred percent clarity out there as to how that um, how that rule is interpreted. But like the classic thing you always read about is when the trustees of a of a pension fund ask whether they can you know be concerned about uh, you know uh, again climate risk, say, and could they divest. Uh, that their lawyers will say to them, oh, you risk losing your house because you're thinking about the environment and not about your, your beneficiaries. And even if you said there was a great benefit to your beneficiaries because of their diversification, you would have the burden of proof um, showing that you weren't doing something selfish. I did an air quote there, selfish, like um, you know, caring about the environment. So what I would say, so it's this, it's the exact same problem. The only thing I would say is it is more of a caricature than even in the company situation because the companies are not as companies diversified, but the asset owners are themselves diversified. 
So of course it seems like, it, it seems to me, like I would argue that they're violating the sole beneficiary rule by not thinking holistically and thinking about systems. And yet that still is not the practice. And again, I don't wanna overstate it because you're beginning to see some asset owners and asset managers you know, talk the language of, uh, of more holistic thinking, but they're really not there yet. So in order to align the fiduciary duties of boards and investors with um, the universal owner and the fact that the externalities of one business affects the entire market, you refer often in your work to the concept of guardrails. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so thanks for asking that because I would say that everything I've said to date is sort of a recapitulation of things that other people have, have thought about and talked about and that like we see you know, creeping um, progress toward, but, but really not enough progress. What, I, I like to think that what uh, the shareholder commons, the organization I formed, brings to the table is a way to solve for the problems we've been talking about. Because you know, as we talk about the universal owner and, and their needs, what we're saying is what, that each company needs to make these decisions um, about well, gee, if I if I you know, if I move out my target date for uh, carbon neutrality by five years, I'll make more money. How do I balance that against the needs of you know the globe as a whole to reduce its carbon output? And you're asking directors to make decisions about issues that are almost incommensurable, like how do you compare profits to to carbon concentration? And they're doing it in a competitive environment. And you know, don't forget, for those of us who still like capitalism, the whole idea of the market is that you let companies go out and look for profits, and because they that means that they are, you know, buying inputs and selling their output, that they've created the value, and the profit represents that value. And that's like the you know, the classic Adam Smith idea. So the question becomes. Well, if you're worried about all these issues created by universal ownership, um, but you but you still like capitalism, how do you how do you reconcile that? And and our idea at Shareholder Commons is to have the universal owners establish guardrails that basically say, we think it is important for. I'm going to stick with the climate example because even though there's lots of other examples, we think it's important that the um, uh, temperature not rise more than 1.5 degrees that it was in 1800. And in order to do that, there's a certain level of carbon concentration permissible, and that means we have a carbon budget. And so what we can do is apply what they call a science-based target to companies and say, uh, you know, in a hypothesized 1.5 degree world, this is your budget. And you know, there's, a, there's a whole, protocol for doing that. And so the universal owners might say, we want every company to work within that budget, and we're going to vote our shares for directors who do that, or you know, we'll vote for directors who hire CEOs to do that. And if we're investing in our portfolio in private equity funds, we're going to ask the sponsors to do that, et cetera. And so that sets up a guardrail and within that guardrail, companies can compete and be innovative and efficient and figure out ways to 
make the most profits within that guardrail. And then you can sit, do the same thing with other sort of existential issues like inequality, um, human rights, um, water resources. So the idea is to, to establish these guardrails and that gives, you know, they are, you know, to go back to your earlier question, they're kind of like regulations. Um, but hopefully you can be a little more dynamic and responsive um, by working with uh, the shareholders uh, who have, you know, really the right, both the right incentive and the power. And, and one thing I'll also say, when you think about the guardrails, one important guardrail uh, or one or more important guardrails are going to actually involve uh, political spending and lobbying and government relations because one of the issues that we have with the current system not working is companies can get such a huge return uh, on their lobbying dollars. Sure, and that uh, particular issue has gotten a lot of attention um, from shareholders uh, and shareholder proposals in uh, this proxy season. So I wanna just talk a bit more about guardrails and I really love this concept. Um, do you see guardrails as effectively self-regulation that ends up informing regulation? In other words, if you could wave your magic wand, would these guardrails be legislated? So I guess if I could wave my, wave my magic wand, yes. I think the, the issue though is I may not have the right incentives, knowledge, and really the people who are, who are best placed to do so and we talk a lot about this in our literature, are the shareholders because they have interests as um, diversified shareholders. But interestingly, you know, ultimately, if you look behind you know, all the funds and intermediaries, you just find citizens who are investing their money. And so they have interests as diversified holders, but they also have interests as um, participants in the job market. They have interests as people who live in the world, and they have ethical interests. And so going to, the, to that group uh, and getting input on how uh, they want their money invested seems very powerful. Certainly, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I guess my question also was whether the dynamic nature of the guardrails actually makes them more effective because once something is a regulation, it's of course not as malleable. Yes, I do, I do think there's a more of an opportunity for iteration and change. I mean, we'll see, right? Because obviously moving, moving the community of, of owners may be very difficult, perhaps not, because some people like to point out that you go to BlackRock and Vanguard uh, and State Street, you have a controlling share of, of most big companies. Um, but, but I do think that there is a, you're right, that there's a dynamism there. Um, that maybe you won't find uh, through regulation. But, but I, also, I also think that they're complementary. It's not a one or the other. Can you give us one concrete example of a guardrail? So, uh, you know, in, in our minds, like we're trying to develop some proto guardrails. Um, the 1.5 degree or two degree um, science-based target, it would be like a, a prime candidate. Um, something uh, with political spending, I think, Probably it would be uh, 
combination of disclosure, shareholder voting at some level, uh, and some mandate of consistency between company public policy and company spending, including through um, third parties, because a, a lot of companies talk a good game, but then contribute to trade associations. And, and because we, you know, we really do think that the, the, the political spending is one of the prime problems uh, or sources of problems that that would be sort of a first order. So that brings us to disclosure requirements for companies and investors. And how should companies and investors view the concept of materiality once we understand that we're all universal owners? Yep. For me, the, the implications of, of all of this are that, you know, the disclosure follows the duty. So, you know, when we had, you know, if you're living in a shareholder privacy world, then you're living in a world where somehow we've decided that what matters to shareholders is company financial return. If we shift to a world where all of these impact, we recognize, you know, the importance of the impact of a company's actions on a diversified portfolio, job market, you know, the lived experience of, of shareholders, you know, then what's material and what's defined as material in the securities laws, I think would expand to include those things. And so, you know, when, when a company reports on, you know, its um, human capital policies right now, that should all be tied back to financial return of the company. So you might say, well, it's important to report on your training programs because training programs you know, might give you a better, you know, a better workforce five years from now. But if you were to go to you know, thinking along universal owner lines, then that training program isn't just a benefit for the company itself, it means you have a stronger workforce because if those people lose their jobs, uh, they, you know, they're better trained for the next one. That makes so much sense. Um, so I'd like to end with corporate form because that is something that you have worked on a great deal and you've given a great deal of thought to and has also received a lot of attention lately in this pandemic. And I want to ask you whether it's possible to effectuate the changes that you're advocating for without changing corporate form. Yeah, so a, a, couple, a couple thoughts on that. Um, I, I think that without changing any law, whether the corporate form level or the trustee level, that a lot of work can be done by changing people's minds. Um, because once trustees and asset managers uh, and beneficiaries and shareholders sort of recognize um, the problems being caused by shareholder primacy, I, I just think there's a lot of room to start making choices that are within the would be even within the bounds of shareholder primacy because you can always argue, right, that, well, we're going to train our employees more because it's good for the company. And, you know, it's hard to um, put a number on that. And so, you know, you can just push harder in that direction. And I think without any laws being changed, we could have a huge improvement in, in how companies think about, you know, their effect on the water supply and their effect 
uh, on their employees and their effect on human rights around the world if their shareholders cared about it. Because ultimately that's what directors care about is getting reelected. So I think there's a huge room for change in that sense. I also think uh, there's a lot of room for changing um, what the law is without changing the actual words that are in the laws because you could change the interpretation. And just one instance I'll give of that is, let's say we all agree that shareholder primacy is the law, i.e. that the directors of companies are working for the benefit of their shareholders. That doesn't have to mean that those directors are working for uh, company financial return. It could be that shareholder primacy means the boards have a duty to think about return to shareholders from the company, but also all the other shareholders' interests. And that would include all the things we've been talking about. And um, it's actually a project at the Shareholder Commons to see if we can instigate some change um, through litigation in that interpretation. Litigation. Perhaps what we do need is a case to clarify the fiduciary duties of directors in Delaware. Well, thank you so much for your work at the Shareholder Commons, and thank you for joining us on the ESG Beat today. Thanks, Amelia, for having me. Uh, this has been great fun, uh, and I look forward to uh, more conversations. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG Beat with me today.